All right, good morning. Good morning. It's good to see you guys and gals, all of you. It's good to see y'all. Um, I was going to start uh, about 15 years ago. I was working at a church. Uh, pastors changed. He's actually the senior pastor at Compass Church in Naperville now, which is another EFCA church. Uh, but the senior pastor at the time, I, I looked up to him. He had a lot of experience, and he took a liking to me, and he wanted to spend more time with me. And so he's like, hey, Jeff, let's go to a Cubs game. And so I was like, that sounds great, right? So we go to a Cubs game, and again, some of you will not like me for this, but I don't know what to tell you. I went to Ohio State. Just know that I met Jesus and my wife there, so you got to get over that. <laughs> um, but So I wear a lot of Ohio State stuff. I'm a proud alumni. And so I, go, I show up to the game with my Ohio State hat on. It's the only hats I have. And he's like, you can't wear an Ohio State hat to a Cubs game. And I'm like, you can wear an Ohio State hat anywhere, buddy. But anyway, okay. He's like, I'm buying you a Cubs hat. I'm like, you know, I'm buying you a Cubs hat. So he buys me a Cubs hat. And it's a really nice one, a fitted Cubs hat. I still wear it. And I wear it around. I wear it around Illinois. Sometimes I wear it, wear it out of state. And I'm not anti-Cubs, and I'm not anti-White Sox. Like, it's fine. I'm just not really a big fan. I don't watch the games. And so sometimes I'll be out with my Cubs hat on, not really thinking about it, because it's not my Ohio State hat, it's a Cubs hat, right? And people will be like, oh, did you see the game last night? And I'll be like, what game is he talking about, right? And then they'll be like, oh, did, could you believe what happened in the seventh inning? And they, they start to see, like, I have no idea. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm, it's, I'm a, I live in Illinois. I'm not really a Cubs fan. I'm sorry. And then there's just this, gr- I feel horrible, right? There's this great disappointment. But it says something about our human nature, our desire to connect over shared experiences. That's kind of funny. You laughed a little bit. A little more serious, though. Uh, Most of you know my dad passed away from cancer when I was 11. I know that some of you have a very similar story. There's at least two of you in the room right now that I know you lost your parents at a really young age. We've connected over that. You tell me you lost your parents around that age, and I'm like, oh, I, I know something about you that other people wouldn't know because I lived a very similar life, right? And, and people, if you haven't had that experience, you might be able to hear people's stories, but you don't know what it's like to wake up every morning in a single-family home if you didn't live it, right? So there's something about these shared experiences that, that matter. And not only about our past and understanding each other, but also challenges we face in the future. It's not going to be a surprise, but when I get back from Africa, (laughs) I'm going to have work on my knee. I had fun playing basketball a couple months ago. It messed up my knee, and it'll be very obvious because I will be sitting down or on crutches for a while while I'm preaching. So get used to me moving now because it's going (laughs) to slow down in a few weeks. But I find it really interesting to talk to those of you who have had knee surgery. I'm really curious, how, how long is it going to take for me to recover? How much did it hurt? Was your doctor nice? You know, like all kinds of curious things, right? I, but, but if you've been through it, you have things you can tell me. And if you haven't, I might be like, you don't know. You know, like I'm going to go find somebody who has, right? So anyway, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're kind of turning a corner in Hebrews, and we're going to hone in on the central portion. Hebrews is kind of like three sections. We just finished the first section last week. And we're going to launch into the second section this week, and it's going to take us several weeks, but it's going to take us all the way into chapter 10. And it's primarily focusing on this unique theology to the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus is our great high priest. We'll begin, we'll just begin talking about that this morning. We have several weeks to work through it. It's not that other New Testament books books don't like bring up this idea, but nobody teaches it like the author of Hebrews. So there's some very unique things in the New Testament that we find in this letter. 
And I, I, I'll just call it out now because I know you got all kinds of people in here, different spiritual backgrounds, different places on your spiritual journey. But let me just say this so you know. Jesus is not a God who just stares at you from heaven and says things like, oh man, that stinks for you. Good luck with that one. I don't know how you're going to work through that. Jesus is the kind of God who enters into your story, into your brokenness, into your pain, into your suffering, (laughs) and changes things. He doesn't stay aloof or distant. He enters right. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. It changes things. So we're in this book of Hebrews, and I, t- I told a few people today, I had to run home really fast, home, I mean, to Ohio, to my mom's house. I was like a 24-hour trip <laughs> down and back. And so I was about nine hours in the car, and I'm not kidding, I spent eight of those hours listening to people talk about Hebrews. So that's how nerdy your pastor is, just so you know. Um, but I loved it. I- I'm really enjoying getting to know this book better than I've ever known it before. And if you haven't been with us, just a a super quick overview, because we're going to pick up at the end of chapter four, and we'll get all the way to the end of chapter five. We'll do chapter six next week. But it's, uh, the the book is written to, it's called Hebrews. Uh, It doesn't take Sherlock Holmes to figure out it's written to a primarily Jewish community. There's probably some Gentiles present, but it's a community that's experiencing persecution and suffering. And part of the problem is these are Jews, and, and they probably wouldn't have thought about any kind of religion shift in the first century. They were Jews who believed the Messiah had come, and so they worshiped Jesus. They probably still went to synagogue, but they also gathered as the church for the Lord's Supper. But Rome is not happy about this new religion. There's all kinds of stuff going on in Rome in the 60s. And so the Jews had a pretty good spot. These Christians were becoming a problem. If you know anything about Nero, it's probably written around the time that Nero is starting to go crazy. So it wasn't easy to be a Christian. And and so the people in the congregation are like, if I can be a Jew and not deal with all the economic, physical, just social persecution that we're experiencing, why don't I do that? Why don't I just forget this whole Messianic Jesus thing and just go back to being a a Jew (laughs) pre-Jesus? And what the author of Hebrews is doing is, is, these are your scriptures, Hebrews. This is the Hebrew Bible, and it's all about Jesus. You can't go back. There's nowhere else to go. This whole thing is about Jesus. The whole thing was preparing you for Jesus. It didn't work really before Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes and makes it all work. So where else are you going to go? You can't go back. There's only Jesus. And that's just echoing through. We're just, li- Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. We're just lifting Jesus up from a Jewish worldview and perspective, saying, hang in there. There's no one like Jesus. It's worth it. Hang in there. So with that in mind, we'll pick up in chapter 4. Verses 12 and 13 are kind of transitionary. Last week we were talking about the rest of God and entering his rest And he picks up here in verse 12, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. Really cool verses we're thinking about. But it was telling us that this is just, this is not an ordinary book, if you will. 
This book tells us who we are. It tells us why we are. It tells us who God is. And God is amazing. God is just like Jesus. Uh, the Word of God is dynamic. It's active. But I even think having spent a lot of time just marinating in this book, if you, if you go back to those first few verses in chapter 1, it begins with, in the beginning, God spoke in a variety of ways. But now, in these last days, since the Messiah has come, He has spoken definitively in His Son. <laughs> and so I even feel like the author of Hebrews loves the Bible, knows it really really well, lives, breathes this book. But I think he would even probably say to us that if you're going to, to hear the scriptures rightly, you need to hear the voice of Jesus in them. <laughs> right? It's a book, but what makes the book dynamic and powerful is that God is alive and active and moving through these pages, in a sense. That's why I think in good discipleship, you know, 20, 25 years ago, when I started walking with Jesus and I started reading the Bible, I had some really wise people. You got, you got to get to know this. Read the New Testament. Read through the Gospels. Get to know Jesus. Learn about what he's done for you. Maybe read it every day, right? And before you do, just say a one-sentence prayer. Jesus, speak to me. Jesus, you're here. This is an incredible book. It's a gift, but I want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, Open my eyes to things I can't see. Look, if you're newer to the Christian journey, pick up a Bible, read through a gospel, but before you do one sentence, just ask God to meet you. We're not just trying to gain head knowledge or memorize a story. We're trying to meet with the living God, the crucified and risen one. And so we ask him to meet us. He wants to meet us. Uh, we'll pick up then in verse 14. Verse 14 is kind of what, what the next really five chapters are ultimately going to be unpacking. In fact, as we work our way through chapter 5, chapter 5 is going to introduce ideas around the high priesthood and then pause in verse 10. I'll explain it when we get there, but not really explain it until we get back to chapter 7. And so even as I was like, how do I teach this? He's introducing things but not going too far. I don't want to go too far because we've got to hold this stuff for chapter 7. But this is kind of where we're going to go. Uh, these are good verses to, to, even, again, sometimes I think there's verses worth memorizing. These are pretty good verses. Chapter 4, verse 14, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, or some translations may say, passed through the heavens. <laughs> I like this. What, what, what does that mean? What does it mean that God has passed through the heavens? I think what the author is getting at, we've been talking about how Jesus has always been, but we talk about the incarnation, Christmas. He entered into our world. The Word became flesh, and He was crucified and resurrected, and now He has been exalted. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And I think as the author is saying He's passing through the heavens, what He's saying is Christ is no longer limited to a human body in that sense of location and limitation in Nazareth and Israel. I mean, we know the resurrected Jesus can do that. He does that in resurrection appearances in the New Testament. But there's no longer this limitation. This Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified and risen one, has passed through the heavens. And now, using Paul's language from Ephesians, we could say Jesus fills all things everywhere with himself. In other words, he is beyond space and time. He is available to all space and time. 
There is nowhere you can go where Jesus isn't, in other words. <laughs> That's who this Jesus is. He's our great high priest. He's the Jesus, the Son of God. And so he says, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Again, don't lose heart. Don't, don't drift, we've talked about. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. That's kind of why I started the way I did. He gets us. He knows us. Why? Because he's faced all of the same testings we do, the same trials, the same temptations, yet he did not sin. As we've journeyed through Hebrews, one of the things the author is doing is, again, he's never diminishing what we receive in the Old Testament. It's all gift. It's all joy. It's all God's wonderful grace towards us. But he's still comparing Jesus. He compares Jesus with us and some of these other pieces of the Old Testament story. And as he does this, he, he, he will draw out, this is how Jesus is like us, or this is how Jesus is like this or that in the Old Testament, and then this is how Jesus is different. And it's always, well, the angels are great, but Jesus is better, right? Moses was amazing, but Jesus is better. And he's always showing Jesus is different, he's distinct, and this is how he's better. And now he's going to do this with the high priesthood. You know, the descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses the descendants of Levi, these Levites, he's going to walk through how is Jesus' priesthood better. Uh, verse 16, so let us come boldly, and this is a real invitation, let us come boldly uh, to the throne of our gracious God, the throne of grace. Uh, the throne of grace, and I think probably the imagery to think of is if you're aware at all of the tabernacle, this moving temple with the Israelites through the wilderness, or even the temple, there's a holy place and then there's a most holy place. It's the inner sanctuary of the temple where only the high priest was allowed to go in one day a year. In there is the Ark of the Covenant, right? Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, if you ever saw Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ark of the Covenant, that right there is considered the mercy seat of God the throne of God. So, we're, so here we are, and we're going to talk about why this is radical and why we need a new priest. <laughs> because you and I are being invited into the most holy place, to the altar, to the throne of God. It was revolutionary. It's incredible. It's only because of Jesus. And what will we find there? That seems maybe intimidating. The author wants us to know, what are you going to find in the most holy place before the throne of God? Well, what does he say? You will receive his mercy, <laughs> and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. It's a place you want to be. I mean, if you have the mercy of God, what else do you need? <laughs> the grace that you need when you need it most is right there waiting for you. <laughs> So chapter 5. So what he's going to do in chapter 5 then is he's going to work through a little bit of this what is, what is like and what is different, right? And so he's going to start by talking about the priesthood in general. And a lot of this comes from Leviticus. You can, if you, if you want to check out Leviticus, it's a fun read. <laughs> it's important. It is really important. Not the easiest to read through, but Chapter 5, verse 1, every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. This is just what priests do. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. Again, this is going to unfold more and more as we go through the letter. And he is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people. That's pretty much us, right? <laughs> because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. 
He knows our story. He's human with us. Verse 3, but here's one of the caveats. He's, he's already making this distinction in what he's laid out in just these little few verses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. So every other high priest is a sinner too and has to, uh, makes, makes intercedes for, for the people, but also has to intercede for himself. He needs, to, he, needs to, he needs to confess and repent, offer sacrifices for himself, but not Jesus. He just said Jesus is, he's just like us in our weakness and our trials and our temptations, but he's never sinned. <laughs> he's, he's never sinned. Jesus is unique. Verse 4, no one become, can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. Again, that's Moses' brother. And so now he's going to draw out the, the similarities. That is why God, Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, no, actually, he was chosen, appointed by God the Father, who said to him, and we've been talking about how important the Psalms are, the poetry in the Old Testament. You are my son, today I have become your father. And in another passage, a very, probably the most important Old Testament passage to the book of Hebrews, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Some of you are like, Melchizedek, what? <laughs> you got to wait two weeks on that one. So, While Jesus was here on earth, and, and as I read through this, I, what I think the author is primarily doing is trying to describe for us out of the gates here what is the ministry, what does the priestly ministry of Jesus look like? And for those of you familiar with the gospel stories, it's probably most of you, maybe a few of you not, but but I want you to picture in your mind, I, I think the way the author is writing Hebrews, I think what he's leaning into, what he's referencing as kind of the high point of the priestly ministry of Jesus, from his perspective, is Gethsemane. <laughs> you know, because he's, he's, he's writing the people who are dealing with suffering. He's thinking about Jesus, knowing our weaknesses, entering into our suffering, knowing that Jesus is facing a pretty intense uh, temptation. It would not have been hard for him to leave Gethsemane and get out of town before Judas came and betrayed him. <laughs> But Jesus, in prayer, sits there with the Father and says, not my will, but yours be done. And, I mean, if we're going to ride with those who have gone before us, I mean, it's often for theologians to say, Jesus isn't just carrying his own sorrows in this moment. He's carrying yours and mine. He's carrying the weight, the emotional weight of all the sin and all the pain that's ever been there in the Garden of Gethsemane in this priestly moment of interceding on our behalf and crying out to God. So with that in mind, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears, right, to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. I, I, it's interesting the way the author of Hebrews, so creative, talks about the resurrection. I think this is his way of talking about the resurrection here. How do we know God the Father heard the Son's prayers? Because he resurrected him. <laughs> because he vindicated him. Because he, he, he brought him forth from the grave. That's how we know. God heard his prayer. And then these next couple verses, and, and again, if you, I, I, don't, I don't have time to get into everything. So if you have questions, you want to shoot me an email or grab time sometime. Uh, some of these verses can be a little confusing or create other conversations. I just want you to get a feel for the letter as I understand it. But, but verse 8 says this, Even though Jesus was God's son, 
He learned obedience from the things he suffered. So a lot of people get a little like, how, if Jesus is the Son of God, how is he learning anything? And all I can say is that's part of the, the scandalous nature of the incarnation. And again, we're at a place where let's just stand in some holy mystery. But I will tell you that when, when John says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, like this was a new thing in the story of God, becoming human. And so God, I mean, it sounds weird to say it, but it's also accurate. God was experiencing new things as a human in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so he was learning, right? He was learning, and he learned, and then the author is honing in on, because of his audience, he learned through suffering. Jesus suffered. That's how he learned. Verse 9, in this way, God qualified him as a, as a perfect high priest. Your translation may say uh, he was perfected. And then it raises the question, well, how could Jesus be perfected? Are you saying he was imperfect and now he's become perfect? I don't think it's talking about moral perfection like you and I might think. I think it's talking about completion. Jesus takes his task, his calling, his vocation of being one of us and the great high priest all the way to death. He completes it. He perfects it. Paul says in Philippians 2, obedience all the way to death on the cross. (laughs) I think that's what the author is referencing. God qualified him as a perfect high priest. He took this thing all the way to the end, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Hebrews is ultimately a book about the life of Jesus. I said this a few weeks ago. I want to say it again. Death tried to swallow up Jesus and found out that the life of Jesus is just too much. (laughs) Or you could say that the finitude of death cannot handle the infinity of the life of Jesus. It's just too much. There's too much life in Jesus. And not only does he overwhelm death, but he becomes our source of life. Eternal salvation, eternal life. It's all in Jesus. Verse 10, and God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Again, who is this? Well, he only shows up in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And again, I'm I'm not going to talk anymore about it because the author doesn't. Chapter 7 is all about Melchizedek. But what the author is doing, he's a good writer. And so he's got your attention. I want to know, how is Jesus and not of the line of Aaron? This is the line of Melchizedek? What, what, this is new. What are you talking about? And he pauses because he has your attention, and now we're going to go into a giant exhortation. So I'm just going to read the first part of the exhortation because it wraps up chapter 5, but we'll pick up chapter 6, verse 1, kind of in the, in the middle of it. And then chapter 6 is a doozy, folks. <laughs> it's pretty intense, and so we'll work our way through it next week. But the author's going to pause while he has your attention and then come back and teach more. Let me just read the end of chapter 5. There is much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain. First service laughed at this, actually. Especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Let's just call it like it is. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic things about God's Word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. We've talked about this before because Paul does the same kinds of things in his letters. Essentially what the author is saying is, It's time to grow up. 
Every once in a while, and I don't care how old you are, actually, (laughs) every once in a while, we need somebody that we trust to look us in the eyes and say, it's time to grow up. I mean, us parents get this, right? There are things that I have no problem that my son does for a while. (laughs) And now he's 14, and I'm like, dude, you're 14 now. It's time to grow up. Jesus says that to me sometimes. Dude, you're 45 now. It's time to grow up. Sometimes we just need that direct challenge. I mean, the author is good. We'll get into that more next week, next week. What I want us to do is is just spend a few minutes talking about this priestly function of Jesus. And again, if you want more context, you can go to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus develops these themes of we could call holiness and consecration or desecration and defilement. So in Leviticus, they're very concerned about defilement and desecration that infects the sacred place. The stuff that might profane the stuff of the sacred place in the temple or the tabernacle, and maybe even then profane the name of God. We'll get into that more later in Hebrews. And probably the chapter that I spent the most time in in Leviticus this week was Leviticus 21 because it has so much to do with the high priest and what the high priest can and can't do. I mean, you can read it on your own, but very clear, like desecration and defilement has to do with how something unholy infects the holy place and the high priest can't be defiled, can't bring that into the presence of God. And the ultimate, the, the ultimate expression of defilement, or, and it shouldn't surprise you, is death, right? Death is the ultimate. It's the enemy. <laughs> it's what defiles the most. But you read through Leviticus 21, and there's all kinds of things that the priest can't touch, people priests can't have relationships with, or things that if they're wrong with the priest, and, you know, just, he has to separate himself so he doesn't get infected, if you will. But remember what I read at the end of chapter 4, we are getting an invitation to follow the great high priest into the most holy place. <laughs> Draw near to the throne of grace. How can this be? The old high priest can't get me into the most holy place. He only goes in one day a year. Well, it's because we have a new priest, a greater high priest who has opened the door for this intimacy with the one true God. Jesus has made a way. And read through the Gospels. The Gospel writers, again, I said, they, they, they develop the priestly theme a little bit differently, but you'll see it. They'll, they'll talk about all kinds of people or situations that should defile someone, but Jesus is never defiled. Jesus, because of who he is, he's God in human flesh, cleanses everything he touches. The people who believe in Jesus, they come alive from the dead. (laughs) Their sins are slain, we sang earlier, right? This is what Jesus, the great high priest, he is never infected by death. Because he's so full of life, he turns the tables on death and recycles it into, can I say, he he infects everything with good (laughs) and life? That's what Jesus does as our great high priest. And I mentioned it this way a few weeks ago, um, I think at the end of our series on the table, but I keep coming back to this language. It's intriguing for me. I kind of play with it in my mind. I heard someone else say it. It's really, it's kind of fun to think about. You you can take this with you, but, but nothing happens to Jesus except what he wants to happen differently for us. 
because of who he is as the great high priest, because not even death can defile him. Nothing, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nothing happens to him except what he wants to happen differently for us. In other words, as you go through the story of Gethsemane all the way up to the crucifixion, these are all experiences that Jesus submits to. He lets these things happen to him, but they're changed. He's not changed. You understand, death is forever changed. That's why the New Testament is so... We no longer have a fear of death because death has been forever changed. Death came at Jesus, (laughs) and got swallowed up by life, right? I mean, that's... God suffers, Jesus suffers, but he suffers in ways that don't change him. It changes what he's suffering. Or let me say it this way, as we're talking about a great high priest who can identify with our weaknesses and our temptations, but he never sins. Let me say it to you this way. Jesus undergoes the fullness of this temptation to the nth degree. Again, if he's dealing with the sorrow and sin and pain of the world, he experiences the depths of temptation in ways we do not. But something unique happens here because this is God in human flesh, something that could only happen to Jesus. What touches him is changed. He's not changed by it. And so let me say it this way. When he's tempted, he's actually creating the possibility of our obedience. You understand, before Jesus comes, we are in bondage to sin. I mean, we still in many ways are, but Jesus is coming to free us from that. You get to know this Jesus. You come to this great high priest. You come to his throne of mercy. He has grace for when you need it, everything you need. Things things happen to him, but he lets it happen so that it's changed. And so now, now you and I with hope can face temptation knowing that Jesus can walk us through it. He makes obedience possible. He's generating faithfulness. Or I think I could say it this way. Even when Jesus puts himself at the mercy of temptation, it's actually temptation and evil that's at his mercy. And that's the mercy we receive. (laughs) The mercy of Jesus that overwhelms evil, forgives us of our sin, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It changes. It changes the way you and I approach suffering. Jesus suffered because he he loves us. He entered into our suffering, and he's giving us a way forward. So what I want to do, actually, to end our time here, we'll come back to this high priestly theme. But I want to lean, I want to kind of maybe with a bigger on-ramp than normal into communion, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to think about your pain, your woundedness, where you're broken, your guilt, your shame, your experience of betrayal, your, your feelings of devastating loss. And if you can't think of any... Um, You need to sit with the Word of God and let this two-edged sword pierce you because we all have them. We We try to ignore them, and we try to avoid them. There's no healing in that. What we want to do is bring our wounds to the wounds of Jesus. That's what we're going to do in communion. What does Peter say? By his wounds, we are healed. 
Hear me when I say this. Jesus knows what it is to be betrayed, beaten, and abused. And he invites us to touch his wounds, to lay our own wounds upon his wounds. And that's where the miracle begins to happen. I don't know how to explain it. I'm not particularly interested in trying to explain it. Somehow, I just know that this is the way it works. When we lay our wounds upon the wounds of Christ, it does not multiply our woundedness. It begins to heal. This is what our great high priest does. In other words, you might be sitting here in all of your shame saying, this one's too big, it's going to defile Jesus. I don't want to defile you. You can't defile Jesus. You can bring all the death you want into the presence of Jesus, and he's just going to resurrect life out of it. (laughs) That's what he does. That's who this high priest is. So bring your pain. Bring your sadness. Bring your sin (laughs) to Jesus and let him heal you. This is what we do when we come to the sacred mystery of communion. It's not just a symbol. It's a participation in the ministry of our great high priest. Paul said the cup of blessing which we bless is our koinonia. That's the Greek word for fellowship, sharing, participation in the blood of Christ. And the bread which we break in memory of the broken, wounded body of Jesus is our koinonia, our fellowship, our sharing, our participation in the broken body of Jesus. And when we bring our wounds to the broken body of Jesus, something mysterious and wonderful begins to occur. As we eat and drink from the wounds of Christ, the healing begins. The healing begins. And so I want to invite you to the table where Jesus is our host, the great high priest. And I want you, you're going to have a little time even to sit with Jesus and think about this and draw near to the throne of grace, right? He's passed through the heavens. He can meet with each of us in our seat this morning right now. But I want you to bring your wounds of rejection and betrayal. I want you to bring your wounds of abuse and addiction. I want you to bring your wounds of failure and shame. Or maybe it's a thousand little things, right? Sometimes it's not one big thing. And sometimes other people have a hard time understanding why we feel wounded because we don't have some horrific story to tell, but it's been a thousand things, right? A thousand little cuts have taken their toll, and you know you're broken. You know you're wounded. Bring your wounds to the wounds of Christ and let the healing begin. Amen, church?